This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. The transition to clean energy requires mining raw materials. Whether you're looking at copper, nickel, platinum, palladium, gold, silver, whatever, are all part of renewable energy technology. So we need them all. So what are the mining impacts of renewable energy? One of our biggest concerns has been um, not only the scaling up, but the scaling up without the adequate environmental and social and human rights safeguards. And whose responsibility is it to solve these problems? I think this is a real challenge and a problem for the first world. It is very clear that we cannot continue to dig our way out and into growth. We cannot continue to consume. Can we get clean energy without dirty mines? I'm Greg Dalton. In 2021, global sales of EVs more than doubled. This year, automakers are projected to make another huge gain, driven by soaring gas prices and more models with increased range. Getting away from gas-powered vehicles is essential to transition to a clean energy economy. But it's not all good news. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has disrupted global supply chains and roiled markets for nickel and other commodities used for renewables and batteries. And the supply chain isn't the only concern. The very practice of mining and processing raw materials is a dirty business. How can the world get the materials it needs to mitigate the climate crisis without creating other ecological disasters in the process? Senators Joe Manchin and Lisa Murkowski recently asked President Biden to invoke the Defense Production Act, or DPA, to accelerate domestic mining of metals needed to make electric vehicle batteries, graphite, manganese, cobalt, nickel, and lithium. On March 31st, Biden did just that with a presidential determination. I asked Morgan Bazilian, director of the Payne Institute for Public Policy and professor at the Colorado School of Mines, what he thought of that bipartisan DPA request. Yeah, so it's it's not an unexpected request. Recall that it's a tool that was started around the Korean War with President Truman and then used again in the Cold War, and it primarily had been used with a focus on metals. So in in Korea for manufacturing for steel and the Cold War after, I believe, aluminum and and, and some other metals. So it's not out of bounds. I think the request makes sense, Murkowski especially, and Manchin, when they were chairs of the Senate Energy Committee, took a great deal of their time and policy attention on the aspects of critical minerals. As someone who rarely sees Republican and Democratic agreement on acceleration of the energy transition, I was just on the surface of it, pleased to see a Republican and a Democrat influential senator say, we got to go faster on EV batteries. Uh, you know, Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, which may hold the nation's largest lithium deposit, introduced a bill that would award money to companies constructing, expanding, or modernizing critical mineral facilities. California Governor Gavin Newsom has a special economic development zone he's calling, you know, Lithium Valley. What do you think about these government-sponsored moves into mining to accelerate? It's exciting. The area of critical minerals has waxed and waned in political attention over many decades. And so it is not a, a new topic for the U.S. politicians to dive into. Under the Trump administration, when Murkowski and Manchin co-chaired the Senate Energy Committee it was widely considered one of the only well-functioning bipartisan committees in the entire Congress. 
And and then, you know, Russia's war in Ukraine has increased calls here for U.S. energy independence. You've argued that energy independence is not the right goal. Why not? It all relates to what I think is the right goal, which is energy security. Energy security is a rather complex idea and is not well-defined, while energy independence I've called a nonsense on many occasions because I don't believe it's an actual goal that we should be aspiring to in a deeply interconnected world. But what it is, is very politically attractive, and it always has been. So it has the same sort of political attraction that other rhetoric around America first, uh, around jobs, 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 and the kind of sort of domestic focus that voters like to see. But when we look at the energy markets of today, and especially in light of all of the impacts that a war uh, by Russia and Ukraine can have on energy markets, we see the tentacles and the, the, the connections of energy all over the world in, in supply chains and in markets and in governance. So to notionally aspire that the United States would be somehow independent of this connected system is the wrong goal. And the right goal there is some definition of energy security. How worried are you that by reducing fossil fuel consumption and increasing renewable energy, we'll just be trading dependence on one set of resources for another? So as usual in these things, it's more complicated than that. And I've done a lot of work on what we call the geopolitics of energy transitions. I'm using energy transition there in the plural because there are several different ongoing transitions that are happening at different scales, at different paces, at different geographies. And so it's, we're not sort of trading one for the other. What we're highlighting here is about critical minerals, the one aspect of those energy transitions. And what we see is that the energy systems of tomorrow, and indeed the energy systems of today, are more mineral and metal intensive than in the past. So we can guess that the systems of the future will keep going in that direction. Um, now, that is been highlighted mostly for renewable energy technologies like solar photovoltaics. Those are solar panels. They have all kinds of different metals and minerals in them, uh, from silver to, to, to steel to aluminum to uh, more exotic things like cadmium and tellurium to wind turbines and LED lighting. Especially electric vehicles have been highlighted because of their dramatic demand increases in their batteries. And those battery metals and minerals, especially on the cathode side, which are things like lithium and nickel and manganese, are front and center in commodity markets and in the uh, imagination of politicians right now. And those are the same ones that we're talking about adding to the Defense Production Act. You're saying that there's a lot of minerals that goes into wind turbines and solar panels, et cetera, that come from all over the world, which kind of challenges the notion that there'll be fewer trade tensions or we won't be less, we'll be less dependent in a renewable world. That's right. And that's why I, I believe the world is deeply interconnected and becoming more so, not less so. 
Russia is the third largest producer of nickel. Ukraine has significant lithium deposits. How have the war in Ukraine reshaped thinking on where we should source the raw materials needed for a clean energy economy? I think the, the, the war in Ukraine has highlighted two especially. One is nickel, as you say, and the other is steel. The nickel market has illuminated in the past couple of weeks some of the issues with these critical minerals. And as the third largest exporter of nickel, Russia is obviously an important player. And what we saw two weeks ago was that the London Metals Exchange, where a lot of these metals are traded, ceased trading of nickel. So they had to stop the trading of nickel because the price went so high. That trading stoppage took place over some time. In other words, it did not immediately come back. And so what that highlights, now it's not only because of the Russian invasion and issues of price on Russian nickel, but also because of uh, some short selling squeeze that happened in the market. But what it highlights is that these markets um, are often very thin. And let's compare them to a global oil market, which is massive and liquid and has good price transparency and pretty good governance where you and I could go on our phones right now and find the price in any of the three major traded zones in 10 seconds. That's not the same for almost any other commodity. And when we see that the governance structures and the how much we can trust the price discovery are also in question, then we we have a lot of work to do as these markets become bigger and more important to fueling the economy. I can't get the image out of my head of children in the Congo hauling sacks of cobalt on their backs. I'm haunted by that. The New York Times did a, a series around the world on climate. Shouldn't we encourage mining in the US, Canada, Australia, where at least we have relatively decent labor and environmental regulations? Yeah, that's a terrific question and that those images are indeed haunting. And let's break that down a little bit. Um, First, it came to the minds of, uh, of people in the United States largely because of these fairly recent reporting by the New York Times. Of course, the issue has been going on for decades. And so, yes, uh, it's, it's deeply disturbing. Um, the governance and the abuses that have been happening in all extractive industries and indeed all industries, including trade, um, have been difficult for not for decades, but for centuries, of course. So this is not a new problem. Um, one of the, the the complexities in the issue, especially of the DRC, Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, it is a country in sub-Saharan Africa. It has enormous resource wealth um, and very poor governance. That that's a nice way of saying it's it's a there's enormous amount of corruption and there's enormous amount of poverty, and so. While the child labor issue is actually relatively small in the DRC for in the cobalt industry, it's obviously a deeply disturbing issue. That said, I, I can tell you that none of the parents of those children want them mining. So it is not a, some sort of choice to say, well, I'm going to put my child to work for no good reason. 
that is essentially the DRC is close to being a failed state. If those children were not working and bringing in income and that income from cobalt was not available, they could very well likely be starving to death. So along those supply chains, though, you brought up the DRC and cobalt. We also have other complex issues of governance and the one that's been on the table and in the U.S. House of Representatives and in legislation is the re-education camps of the Uyghurs in China um, in the area of Xinjiang, where you have lots of the world's polysilicon as well as uh, photovoltaic modules. They're not re-education centers. I mean, they're, 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 it's like prison labor, right? Yeah, I'm just using the, the sort of accepted diplomatic terminology, but the there are these difficult supply chains that exist that, again, that is not a new phenomena and we need to address each separately and with with tools that provide um, some access to context of this of the the issues the biden administration paused development of the twin metals mine near the boundary waters canoe area wilderness in minnesota this is a prime example of the tensions between the administration's desire to foster domestic mineral production and their america the beautiful plan which is part of the 30 by 30 a global movement to conserve 30 percent of all lands and waters by 2030. So how do you see that tension resolving with wanting to have more domestic production and also wanting to set aside more ecosystems that can capture carbon and um, other benefits? Yeah, right. So these tensions and trade-offs exist and they're sometimes, well, they're often difficult. And what I think is that, in response to your last question as well, moving to why shouldn't we just produce these things in the United States or Canada or Australia, where we know that the environmental and social and governance regulations are better. Well, to an extent, we, we, we can move that way. But what you see when you, when you move that way is that you have different tensions, and those tend to be often under the banner of social license to operate. And what that means is that how these projects, especially extractives projects, but even things like putting up wind turbines uh, in rural communities have had enormous pushback by communities. And each community has a different set of values and societal uh, pressures. And so each project goes through these same um, processes anew, essentially. There are principles and there are ways to engage that are better. One of the most important, I think, at the higher level is to make the trade-offs and tensions explicit. Um, Acknowledge yes, what uh, we're doing rather than, because sometimes, you know, bringing things mining on shore means often people are concerned that putting it on indigenous lands or, or putting it in disadvantaged communities with less power. And that's often done and it's not explicit. People know well, what's that's happening. That's exactly right. So, yeah. you know, as in most things, the 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 most difficult implications and impacts of 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 projects and trade and the rest fall on the poor. And that's not just the poor in the United States. Of course, it's the poor all over the world. So, the mine you mentioned is right near the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness in Minnesota. It was looked for um, a lease. For copper mining. The mining would have provided domestic source of minerals, absolutely crucial for decarbonizing the economy. Copper is 
uh, front and center on the metals for towards electrification. If you have a any motor, any transmission line, electricity, it has copper in it. Um, and the Biden administration canceled those two mining leases, uh, which could be seen as a victory for conservation because they they propose a 20-year moratorium, et cetera. But there's always these complex trade-offs and the minerals in those mines would have been provided increasingly vital materials to shift to renewable energy and decarbonize the economy. as well. And it would have bolstered the administration's own goals in the American Competes Act and uh, whether you're looking at copper, nickel, platinum, palladium, gold, silver, whatever, are all part of renewable energy technology. So we need them all. And so what I mean by making the trade-offs explicit is that the difficulties in that sort of both sides situation need to be laid out. Yes, it would have had you know a lot of implications on biodiversity and, and ecology and other things. But these pressures and these trade-offs are only increasing, not decreasing. According to the International Energy Agency, getting to net zero carbon emissions by 2050 would require six times more mineral inputs than today. And recycling only helps once all those extra tons of minerals are extracted, processed, and implemented. So it seems like we're on this path of doing a bunch of harm and then having to clean it up and recycle it later. Will mining always be inherently damaging to landscapes and ecosystems? Well, to a certain extent, the process of extracting these things from the earth is damaging to things nearby. That said, there are an enormous amount of technical and sustainability efforts in the mining companies and the mining industry and the education we provide at the Colorado School of Mines that makes mining have much less of an impact on surrounding communities, as well as uh, biodiversity, as well as, you know, things like water quality, where, you know, now you can go in and make sure that those impacts are really very small. Now, of course, when you use those technologies and systems and processes that are established now and understood, sometimes they can cost more money than doing it the quote unquote, old fashioned way. And so that has implications for investors. But yes, it, it can be done sustainably in most cases. In fact, a lot of the issues are not going to be coming from the impacts of mining itself, but from the processing of these ores into chemicals. And that is a key process where China absolutely dominates and where you in the United States are going to have a very difficult time not only getting the permits, but getting the sort of social license to operate from communities to have these processing plants nearby. Yeah, there's even a case to be made that those things ought to be closer to the people who are consuming those products. So we understand the implications and they can't be, you know, put in some other country where we're distanced from it. So we don't have to think about it. Professor, I'd like to ask, you know, how fast is technology, particularly battery chemistry, changing? Are we overly worried about sourcing lithium and cobalt? Are we worrying about the wrong thing And in a few years that there'll be other battery technologies out there that are less invasive and destructive? 
Yeah, look, um, the, the, there's little question that um, the technology development will will happen. It will happen with non-linearity and, and disruption. And so it's an, an impossible to sort of say exactly. There's already quite a lot of chemistries that are looking to minimize, especially cobalt in that cathode process. Will the lithium ion structure in general be stay the dominant paradigm? Who knows? But we can say that if you've ever been to a research university, um, things don't move as quickly as the public imagination. Um, fundamental battery chemistries may uh, look fairly uh, similar for the next few decades. Uh, and so I, I don't think it's a matter of um, so much saying, well, we will just engineer out these problematic minerals. Um, if anything, they'll shift to something else. And at the demand levels we're looking at in the short term, uh, it looks like we're staying in the roughly in the paradigm we're in and therefore making the kind of trade-offs explicit, as you just said, um, is, is one way to go. I'm optimistic that we will navigate aspects of this elegantly and aspects of this uh, not so elegantly. And so... Uh, uh, looking forward to chatting with you again, and thank you for having me on your program. Thank you, Morgan Bazilian. Thanks for coming on Climate One. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about mining materials for a clean energy economy. Coming up, as we move to electrify everything, how do we avoid trading one extractive economy for another? We're not going to be able to build you know, a truly robust and enduring clean energy future by replicating the mistakes of the fossil fuel economy that we're, we're seeking to replace. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Mining for minerals, including materials needed to power clean energy, is anything but clean. Not only is mining destructive, but it's often done in poorer countries with less environmental and labor protections. I discussed this with Pyle Sampat, Mining Program Director at Earthworks, an environmental organization. Even in the United States, metals mining is the leading industrial polluter. And mining uses uh, 10% of the world's fossil fuel energy sources, contributes 10% of energy-related greenhouse gases. This is a sector with a significant environmental footprint. And there's also been disproportionate harm that's uh, been incurred by indigenous peoples, communities at the front lines of this extraction. So one of our biggest concerns has been um, not only the scaling up, but the scaling up without the adequate environmental and social and human rights safeguards. This doesn't have to be a set in stone. Our transition to a clean energy economy shouldn't be essentially replacing one form of extraction with another, uh, replacing dirty oils and, fo and fossil fuels with dirty mining. We're not going to be able to build you know, a truly robust and enduring clean energy future by replicating the mistakes of the fossil fuel economy that we're, we're seeking to replace. So you're saying continue mining because we need these minerals for this transition. Just do it in a more clean and responsible way. You're not saying stop mining, don't dig stuff out of the ground. How can we obtain the minerals that we need for these battery technologies and the renewable energy technologies without having 
to dig enormous holes in the ground without having um, the destructive activity that seems to precede these clean energy technologies. And in order to answer that question, and in order to really come to grips with some of these projections that we've been seeing uh, for uh, battery minerals such as cobalt, nickel, uh, lithium. We commissioned some research by a team of researchers at the University of Technology in Sydney. And this is a group of folks who have, you know, come up with scenarios for 100% renewable planet by 2050. And those researchers found that um, recycling electric vehicle batteries specifically can reduce the need for new mining uh, by between 25 and 55%, depending on the mineral, by 2040. So this is a pretty short time frame, um, and specifically looking at recycling electric vehicle batteries, not even looking at you know, the various sources uh, for nickel and, um, and copper and, and some of these other minerals. They're eminently recyclable, um, you know, between 90 to 100 percent, depending on the minerals. So we need to be thinking not only about mining, but about alternative sources for these minerals, not only about alternative sources for these minerals, but whether we need those minerals and who is benefiting from them um, in the long term. So, you know, should we be investing in private EVs, a third Tesla in the garage, should we be, you know, for some people, or do we also have the opportunity to enhance equity and access to the benefits of these minerals for more people by building, you know, low carbon public transit options, um, for example. So there's sort of bigger questions than just which mine am I looking at um, in order to get this specific amount of cobalt or lithium. So I understand that you know there's a lot of potential for recycling these batteries rather than than new mining and the World Bank does say in a report that recycling and reuse will have a role in meeting future mineral demand but primary mineral demand from mining will still be needed which raises the question where should mining take place where it's most economical which probably means less developed countries uh, or here in the US where we generally have better labor and environmental regulations in place I would like to propose the question should be how should mining take place? Um, what are the safeguards that are needed to protect communities and to protect ecosystems from the kind of environmental harm that uh, mining is is inflicting on on people in the planet? Even in the United States, where supposedly laws are 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 better, first of all, we have a mining law that dates back to eighteen seventy two. And as a result of that mining law and the lack of environmental safeguards that 150-year-old law has, metals mining is the leading industrial polluter in this country. Uh, and that is by the Environmental Protection Agency's you know, reports from, from mining companies directly. So this is an, this is an industry that has a, a significant footprint, and that needs to be reined in and dramatically reduced, um, no matter where it's occurring. What specifically would you propose changes to that 1872 mining law? Yeah, I mean, the thing to keep in mind is that the general mining law of 1872, which was signed 150 years ago by Ulysses S. Grant, 
was really written as a settler colonialist law. It was not written in any way to deal with the kind of mining that we see today. Um, so there's really a myth of more responsible mining in the United States. Hard rock miners pay zero royalty on the wealth that's extracted from public lands. Um, so mining companies have extracted $300 billion of minerals since 1872 without you or I or taxpayers getting a dime for that. Hard rock mining is uh, the nation's top polluter. 40% of, of the headwaters of Western states have been polluted by mining. You know, and also another thing to keep in mind is it's not just the 1872 mining law. There are other environmental um, laws that have loopholes for mining. So mining is a, ex, uh, has an exemption from the Clean Water Act, for example, which allows mining companies to dump their mine wastes into uh, natural water bodies such as lakes and streams. So absolutely, without a doubt, reforming the 1872 mining law as well as the other laws um, and, and requirements that govern mining in the U.S., as well as parallel requirements globally, are, are essential. And that is something that we have sort of a, a sense that might be, um, you know, that might be coming. Last June, uh, President Biden signed an executive order that called for um, regulatory reform. Um, and he's just recently, President Biden's recently published uh, Principles for Mining Reform, um, there's also been an interagency working group that was formed by the Department of uh, Interior announced just a few weeks ago um, that is really going to be looking at the myriad uh, approaches to more responsible mineral sourcing. What are some examples of mining th that you can point to that this is the way it should be done more responsibly to help propel this clean energy transition? Yeah, it's it's a complicated um, question, really. And you know, to paraphrase, misquote Mark Twain, uh, you know, a mine is a hole in the ground built by a liar. And really, if someone comes to you and says, "Here's a perfectly benign new mining technology that will just pluck minerals out of the earth without causing any destruction," you'd probably want to think twice about the um, veracity of that kind of claim. But that doesn't mean that there aren't um, answers and there aren't uh, ways in which to really reduce, shrink the environmental and social footprint of, of mining. One such example is the Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance, or IRMA, that was, um, that was created by a multi-stakeholder set of actors, um, labor unions, NGOs, communities, mining companies, and downstream buyers. And that system has a, a standard with um, you know, 400 pages of requirements ranging from anti-corruption to how cyanide and mercury should be regulated to impact on forests and indigenous peoples and the right to free prior and informed consent. And it really lays out this a standard for more responsible mining where mining must or is already occurring. Native Americans are resisting lithium mining on their lands. How is that playing out in this clean energy transition? That really underscores disproportionate harm that indigenous peoples on this continent and others are facing. And this is in the U.S., um, this is in Papua New Guinea, in Argentina, in Chile, and even in Russia, where um, indigenous peoples in the Arctic have been disproportionately harmed by the Nornickel facility, mining facility, and, and processing facility. 
One example is the uh, proposed um, Thacker Pass mine in Nevada, which is on the ancestral lands of the Fort McDermott um, Paiute Shoshone peoples and other tribes. You know, another example is in Arizona, where there's a proposed lithium mine on uh, Wallapai lands. So those are directly on the reservations um, of indigenous peoples. And let's not forget that the U.S. West was this we're on the territories of the original yeah, ev- peoples of this land. <laughs> Every, everything in this country yeah. is, yeah, essentially, yeah, land that was um, <laughs> unseated uh, from indigenous people. Europe is ahead of the United States in the race to clean up and decarbonize its economy. It's also out front on batteries. Her European proposal would establish carbon footprint rules, minimum recycled content, performance, and durability criteria for EV batteries. Is Europe on the right track, in your view, in terms of electric mobility? Yes, I think the European Union's battery legislation is a really good example of um, how and ways in which we can tilt the balance um, in favor of circularity and recycling and away from extraction. And it's really time for the United States to catch up with the EU um, and and elsewhere um, in terms of modernizing our, our, our legislation and requirements for more responsible circular economy. So to to sum up, if we agree that in order to address the climate crisis, we need some amount of new materials, what is the best way or at least the least bad way to get those minerals? There's going to have to be a combination of um, circular economy, recycling, and secondary sourcing, um, which can displace up to 55% of um, new mining demand. Um, And where new mining uh, is occurring, we need far stronger regulations and laws to protect communities and the environment. Um, one of the pillars of that should be the free, prior, and informed consent of indigenous peoples, which is something that's enshrined in international law. But we cannot build a clean energy future on a dirty minerals supply chain. Pyle Sampat is Mining Program Director at Earthworks. Pyle, thanks for sharing your insights on this transition for the new energy economy. Thank you, Greg. As we've mentioned, developing a domestic source of lithium will be a key part of the transition to electric vehicles. But a planned lithium mining project in Nevada has touched off a controversy over its negative impact on the local habitat, adjacent communities, and cultural sites that Native tribes consider sacred. As Aman Azar reports, a coalition of environmental groups, local activists, and indigenous tribes is pushing back against the multi-billion dollar project. At the base of Nevada's Montana Mountains, underneath acres of old-growth sagebrush, lies one of the world's largest lithium deposits. Lithium Americas, the mining company, plans to develop this site into an open-pit mine to extract an estimated 66,000 tons of lithium a year a key element for our renewable energy transition. But the plan to mine the area known as Thacker Pass has met stiff resistance from activists, tribes, ranchers, and residents who see the lithium extraction as a new gold rush. The farmers and ranchers are really concerned about water pollution, air pollution, and hundreds of semi-trucks on these rural quiet roads going through their communities. Uh, The native communities are very concerned about harm to sacred sites, 
That's Max Wilbert, an environmental activist who's leading the campaign Protect Thacker Pass. It's an incredibly beautiful place. It's truly a wild corner of the country. And these are the types of places that are increasingly threatened by lithium mining and other types of extraction as well as green energy sprawl. The open pit mine will be almost 400 feet deep, more than two miles long, and half a mile wide. The company anticipates the mining activity will last for nearly 50 years. Its annual carbon dioxide emissions will equal that of a small city, and it's expected to consume close to 2 billion gallons of water annually in a region experiencing extreme drought. After the mining permit was approved in January 2021, four environmental groups filed a lawsuit saying the mining operation imperils precious habitat for species, including pronghorn antelope, golden eagles, and migratory birds. Thacker Pass Project uh, was one of the, has one of the most poorly uh, drafted environmental impact statements that I've seen. The process was rushed through pretty quickly. John Hadder is director of the Reno-based Great Basin Resource Watch, which is a plaintiff in the lawsuit along with three other regional environmental nonprofits. He says the Bureau of Land Management fast-tracked the environmental impact study under a Trump administration order, leaving many questions unanswered. It allows water pollution uh, at the site. It uh, affects uh, wildlife, uh, especially sensitive species like sage-grouse and migratory species, eagles. There's also cultural values to the site which are not fully explored in the EIS as well. So um, we challenged many aspects of the project. There was a lot of lack of discussion on uh, what are the uh, effects of the mine and how are they going to be mitigated. Hedder said the mining activity will affect nearby communities and pollute groundwater for a very long time because of the toxic waste from lithium processing stored on-site indefinitely. Lithium America says all processed water will be recycled for on-site use, which would also help cut down on the use of groundwater. The company also says it established a fund in 2017 to develop revegetation technologies to reclaim the impacted land. For Hatter, an antiquated law that considers mining the highest and best use of the land is also part of the problem that needs urgent fixing. The 1872 mining law, just the number 1872 should be striking. That's, you know, we're talking about 150 years. It was a very um, aggressive period of extraction. Um, if there was a community that lived there, like say it was an uh, indigenous community, they just basically pushed them off the land and said, well, I have a claim here because I found gold. Indigenous tribes from the area have also joined in the legal fight to stop the mining from going forward arguing it would disturb and desecrate the cultural and prayer sites that include ancestral remains. Mishon Eben is a member of the Reno Sparks Indian Colony. When there was a gold and silver rush, it annihilated and hurt our ancestors. And now that if we're going to have this new lithium rush, we need to do this appropriately and right. And Native American people need to be at the at the table and to understand that we have a role to play in the decision making when it comes to our traditional cultural properties. She says the U.S. government did not make an effort to meaningfully engage and consult the tribal governments and rush the project at a time when Native tribes were hit hard by COVID. We joined the litigation so that we can protect this area, we can protect the sacred, we can protect our medicines, my, our water, our foods, 
and um, the beautiful species, all the species are out there. Electric vehicles are expected to make up 40 to 50 percent of all auto sales in the United States by 2030. And the Biden administration has called the investment in EVs a race for the future. But activist Max Wilbert says green energy transition will not be successful without reining in consumer culture and the extractive industries that prey on poor but resource-rich communities. We're not going to buy our way out of this crisis, and electric cars aren't a real solution. We need to stop consuming in order to solve this crisis that we're facing, because it's not just global warming. There's also the biodiversity collapse, the oceanic dead zones, the plastics in the ocean, the chemical pollution, a huge slew of issues all coming together. As the courts weigh the case, the Protect Thacker Pass campaign and people of the Red Mountain tribe are calling on Interior Secretary Deb Haaland to intervene and stop the mining project. We're not going to give up. And ultimately, that's because we love this place. We love this land. And we believe that it deserves integrity. It deserves protection. Lithium Americas is expected to start working at the mining site within the coming months. Environmental activists and native tribes are hoping the court will decide the case before that and hopefully rule in favor of preserving Thacker Pass. For Climate One in Washington, D.C., this is Aman Azhar. This is Climate One. Coming up, how are equity issues being addressed in the extraction of metals and minerals? But the challenges for the first world is what is it that you're willing to give up in terms of comfort as opposed to how do we maintain our uh, systems, ecological systems to ensure they continue to function. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey, Climate One fans, we have some exciting news. We are now on Patreon. That means that you, as a subscriber, can get access to Climate One episodes free of ads interrupting your listening experience. For just $5 a month, your Patreon membership also gets you access to our Climate One Discord channel, where you can discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about mining raw materials for a clean energy future. Deep in the Pacific Ocean, an area called the Clarion-Clipperton Zone contains a high concentration of metals, including nickel, manganese, and cobalt, that theoretically makes it a preferential place to mine. A lot of this is concentrated in nodules that rest on the sea floor. From a global perspective, going after these metals where they're most concentrated would seem to make sense because ideally it could mean less areas disturbed. But Maureen Panduelli, coordinator of the Fiji-based Pacific Network on Globalization, says that framing is problematic and overlooks the economic, environmental, and social impacts of deep-sea mining. She spoke with Climate One's Ariana Brocious. I think that particular statement is quite problematic both on the economic, environmental, and certainly on the social front. Um, yes, indeed, there are high qualities of these minerals that, as you've described, in the clariton clipperton zone. But we know now that the scientific evidence around impacts is certainly 
um, quite evident that deep sea mining will disturb ecosystems that have taken millions of years to develop and grow, and we would destroy that, um, and it, the damage would be irreversible. Those kinds of costs have not been factored in so that you haven't internalized those costs into your economic argument around the benefits. And the global community still hasn't agreed on an effective way to share the wealth, economic wealth of the resources yet. So what is known about marine carbon sinks and how deep sea mining could disrupt them? The ocean is now considered um, a carbon pump. And it operates in two ways. There's a biological pump, which really looks at how the ocean sequests carbon from the air through food web or the food system um, and how it deposits it onto the seafloor. And then the second part of the carbon pump is the physical ocean circulation, the currents themselves, you know, warm water cold water um, and the mixing of that. And so the ocean today is considered one of the most stable carbon pumps. Uh, if you think about the way we sequest, the ocean sequests carbon from the atmosphere, it absorbs about 9 billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, of which between 2 to 6 billion tons of that is then taken to the bottom of the ocean floor. So our understanding about the ocean as a carbon storage site is now improving. And we know from similar kinds of activities such as bottom trawling, um, scientists, scientists have really demonstrated that, you know, very similar activities like, like deep sea mining will disturb the ocean uh, carbon storage function. Let's talk a bit more about the kind of mining that would happen when we're describing deep sea mining. So are there forms that are less destructive than others, for example, going after these polymetallic nodules that are not attached to the seafloor as opposed to scraping, like, you know, mining the, the crust for a specific mineral or material? Look, I think industry players have been very good at arguing that, you know, there will be less uh, uh, one set of mining on the seafloor would be better than the other. So I think there are three types of uh, areas of interest, which is seafloor massive sulfides, polymetallic metallic nodules, as you described, and then ferromanganese crusts, right? So the key thing to keep in mind is that the ocean doesn't recognize these kinds of artificial boundaries that we we as humans keep suggesting uh, and implying based on these three different kinds of systems. Um, indeed, we know now that polymetallic nodules, uh, particularly in the claret and clipperton zone, the science is improving in terms of this is not a dead area where there's not many biodiversity doesn't thrive. That's absolutely not true. Um, secondly, the kinds of mining that uh, industry players are talking about isn't exactly as they describe it to be. It's very similar to open pit mining, where the top layer will be removed. And so you will disturb sediments on the sea floor. Um, that's going to be transported up to the mothership where it will be treated. And then sediments will be sent down, which has toxins through the processing on these motherships. Now, depending on where these, these operators 
uh, deposit sediments back. It could be in midwater range or down at the bottom of the seafloor. The, the across the board, what the, the, the damages that we're looking at is that it will destroy. Uh, ecosystems, ecosystem functions that are quite critical. So I think it's quite nonsense to artificially try to separate these three types of mining, if you like, and, and, and propose that one is better than the other. In that case, how does this compare to land-based mining? Is there a better alternative there? Again, this is highly problematic to to try to make comparisons between land-based mining and seabed mining. Again, industry players really propose that, you know, deep sea mining is a lighter touch, as is certainly would be less damaging than land-based mining. But I think we need to really consider uh three-dimensional scale of impacts of, of, of deep-sea mining. We need to understand it in terms of a time scale, which I think people really have to grasp with. The, again, really emphasizing that these systems took millions of years to form. We know very little about, the, about many of the organisms and the ecosystems that the biodiversity but we know that they're between tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands, one of the most vibrant systems in the world. Um, deep sea mining will definitely destroy this within a blink of a human eye in terms of time scales, right? We know that sediment plumes can travel, they can remain suspended in water columns for longer periods of time. Um, so I think we need to really keep just, just, Stop this idea that we can compare land-based to deep-sea-based mining uh, and, 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 again, argue that one is better than the other. So you're based, you know, you're out of Fiji, uh, and I'm wondering, what have been the impacts of climate disruption that you've experienced in Fiji within your own lifetime? Growing up in an island uh, context, I mean, one of the key observations that we've seen is really the increase in intensity and frequency of cyclones. Um, getting a, top, um, a category five cyclone, which is the most powerful of all cyclones, a bit like hurricanes, um, used to be very rare. And certainly in the last five years, we've seen the intensity and frequency, um, you know, you can get two to three between category four and five cyclones coming through in any one season. Um, and so that's, that's quite dramatic. Um, we're seeing changes to rainfall patterns and we're seeing recovery because of intensity, um, getting weaker. Um, in, in many ways, countries are not coping because of the frequency and intensities of things like this. But I've also traveled quite extensively in the Pacific to atoll nations, which are less than five meters high. You know, these are countries that are 10 square miles in total landmass. Uh, the kinds of climate impact has been slow, likened to slow genocide. Um, Saltwater incursion around freshwater uh, has become quite critical. And obviously, super king tides are affecting where people can live, uh, pushing more and more people into limited spaces within these atoll nations. So, you know, climate impact is quite real. Uh, and obviously, from the Pacific, we are at the forefront of climate impacts. Right. 
as we look to a future less reliant on fossil fuels, we'll need to be reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and that will take more batteries and therefore a lot more materials and minerals that go into those batteries. So how do you compare the threat to oceans and people's livelihoods from deep sea mining to the threats posed by climate change itself? I think it's an added level of threat. I think that we need to look at it that deep sea mining could further destabilize um, the climate functions of the ocean. So that is just another element and dimension to impact that we need to consider in terms of these minerals. And I think presenting them as green or blue-green minerals, if you like, necessary for transitioning into a cleaner more greener climate, that's highly problematic. And as I've said before, um, earlier in this piece, that, you know, we need to be looking at the role that ocean plays in terms of climate adaptation and mitigation. And we need to look at that as a response to climate change uh, and addressing the climate crisis rather than adding to the many woes that oceans are currently facing. We've seen over the last couple centuries, powerful countries, mining companies, largely from the global north, who have a terrible track record of coming in and exploiting places, often without the involvement necessarily of the people who live there or to the benefit of those people. So I'm curious, when there are resources like this discovered and found to be valuable, do you think there are ways in which the local people can benefit without being exploited? I think in many ways from the global south, they have no good news on the resource curse front. Yes, we are blessed in many ways to have these resources, but they've turned out to be um, a curse for many of our people. A country like Papua New Guinea, which hosts and is home to the second largest copper mine uh, of Papua, the land of Papua, is host to numerous mines and mining interests on land. And we know from first-hand experiences our communities that they don't benefit. In fact, those who benefit are the elite or very few people actually really benefit from that. And so you, you, you can extrapolate, if you like, from our experiences on land to the ocean. And again, it's very clear that we do not stand to benefit from this proposition of deep sea mining. Our communities are very clear that these minerals that sit on the ocean floor, mining them would affect their own sets of livelihoods. Um, they're heavily dependent on fish for protein um, to sell uh, as part of subsistence agriculture. Our tourism sectors are heavily dependent on clean, healthy oceans. Um, and so, you know, for us, this proposition that we stand to benefit, we know where benefit sits and the real value of the ocean sits. And it's not in mining. It sits in other um, sectors, if you like, but definitely will not come from mining the ocean floor. So if we were to take deep sea mining completely off the table as an option here, which I think is what you're you're advocating for, how then would we get the volume of the minerals that we need to support the green energy revolution that we we're all talking about in order to avoid further impacts from the climate crisis? I think this is a real challenge and a problem for the first world. It is very clear that we cannot continue to dig our way 
out and into growth. Um, we certainly need to look at consumption, consumption patterns. We cannot continue to consume. We need to look at recycling, certainly technological innovations to allow a smoother transition. But the challenge is to, for the first world, is what is it that you're willing to give up in terms of comfort as opposed to how do we maintain our uh, systems? ecological systems to ensure they continue to function. For us in the Pacific, our message is really clear. Deep sea minerals is off and should be off the table for consideration. And we need to do more work to address um, recycling, circular economies, um, to sustain lifestyles that we simply cannot sustain at this point. Maureen Penjueli is a coordinator with the Pacific Network on Globalization in Fiji. Maureen, thank you so much for joining us on Climate One. Thank you, Ariana. On this Climate One, we've been talking about the impacts of mining raw materials for a clean energy future. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be hard. Sometimes it's awkward, difficult, even depressing. And it's critical to addressing the climate emergency. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review, or better yet, telling a friend. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox and Tyler Reed. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. Hey, Climate One fans. We've all gotten used to a subscription model for paying for the things we really value. Here at Climate One, it's no different. We produce this show every week for free, and now we're offering you an opportunity to get our show free of ads. For just $5 per month, you can join us on Patreon and get access to our episodes free of ads and get access to our exclusive Climate One Discord channel. That allows you to discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one.